And I still don't know how I would do it different, to be honest, at that point in life. But I know I failed. Welcome to the Competitive Mindset Podcast. Each interview, we talk to leaders who differentiate themselves and achieve high levels of performance through the lens of motivation, competitiveness, and mindset. These conversations lead to thought-provoking idea sharing and growth, accompanied by entertaining storytelling. Welcome along on our journey to lifelong learning, improved performance, and a look inside the competitive mindset. Justin Anderson is the boys' varsity basketball coach at Des Moines Lincoln High School in Des Moines, Iowa. He brings a variety of coaching experiences and numerous levels of competition to his job, where he turned the program around through community and individual engagement. Justin Anderson, welcome to the Competitive Mindset Podcast. Billy Kegler, thanks for having me. Good to hear from you. My pleasure. It's great to hear your voice. It brings back so many good memories for me. Absolutely. Can we get Big Dong out in here too? That would be something, wouldn't it? Let's get Big Dog in here and just have him list off all his nicknames. Once oh. the world gets a little bit back to normal and I can be more face-to-face with him, I will definitely do something. Yeah, I need to come up but and see that guy again. He makes everybody's day better. Like I tell people, he has two kinds of days, good days and great days. <laughs> Best way to live. And you'll get a nice big, hello, Justin. <laughs> You know, it's too bad there's probably people listening to this who don't know who Big Dog is because uh, he's a life-changing kind of kind of person. You know, everybody needs a Big Dog in their life. Yeah, you don't know it until you have one in your life that you need to have one of those kinds of people. And I'm not joking when I say he has two kinds of days, good days and great days, and he's always got a smile on his face and is always carefree in a good kind of way. So I will definitely get him on just to talk about some of his favorite experiences I think at some point in time because he his memory as you are well aware oh, is out of this world yeah and I think he, what is the over 50 years at Madison College as a manager uh, 43 right now 43 okay so yeah. over 40 that's, yeah still that's plenty of time well let's dive into a little bit about your history tell me about your journey through your career and through coaching to where you are right now well, I grew up in a big sports family. My first memories actually are with my dad at high school basketball gyms around the Fox Valley and Manitowoc, and then uh, my stepdad bringing me to Lambeau Field. There's a little bit of a coach, a coaching lineage. Ron Einerson, who was a coach at Nina for many, many years and was really successful, is a great uncle of mine. And um, it's always been something I wanted to do. You know, when I was in high school, I really wasn't that good. And uh, senior year, I didn't have the opportunity to play, but the coaching staff wanted to keep me around because I was pretty helpful and very committed. So it's funny because I'm not sure I would have got into coaching if I actually would have played my senior year. But I was really involved with the coaching staff. Uh, spent a lot of one-on-one time with Brian Gallagher, who was the first-year head coach at Two Rivers High School. It kind of set me up for the future. So Brian Gallagher just happened to play in college with Rob Jeter at uw Platteville. Rob Jeter ended up the coach at UW-Milwaukee, and I was at UW-Milwaukee. That connection was made, and I ended up the head manager at Milwaukee and uh, was there for a couple of years. Actually, was there one year after I graduated as a like a coach's assistant, administrative assistant, they called me. So I was part of the coaching staff in a volunteer role, doing a lot of the administrative stuff and helping out you know, with off-season workouts and that sort of thing. A little bit of on-campus recruiting, mail-outs and video coordination and operations. 
which is an amazing experience because I got a lot of different experiences under my belt really quickly. And they gave me a lot of freedom to go out and get things done, you know, whatever they needed done. So that was pretty cool. And to do that for a Division One program, as young as I was, was really special. And I was actually trying to be a high school coach after college. But Coach Jeter and Chad Boudreau, Duffy Conroy, a couple other, Chip McKenzie, they wanted me to try the college world out. So they got me a grad assistant position at Clark University. That ended up an awesome fit because, one, it introduced me to Iowa, where I spent the majority of my adult life, uh, even though it was barely over the border, as you know. I got to work for Jerry Dryman, who's one of the best people, best X's and O coaches I've ever been around. Just an incredible, incredible leader. And he was turning that program around at Clark. So I was his first assistant, had almost no on-court experience. I was 24 years old. I, uh, I moved in. You know, I think I was making 2500 a year and walking to champs across the highway because I didn't have, I didn't even have a car when I got there because it broke down right away. But it was the best experience of my life at that time. I, I was on the road recruiting, just figuring it out, trying to figure out what kind of players he liked, uh, what kind of players would fit at Clark. And first couple years were really rough. We were 9-22 and and then 6-25, and but we kind of put all of our eggs into the the third year's basket, had a great JUCO recruiting class. I had a pretty solid year the third year, but I was just finishing up my master's in business administration, which I will never use in my life. I had the opportunity to go down to Howard College in Texas, which is a Division One powerhouse JUCO. Worked for Mark Adams, who is now the defensive guru at Texas Tech. And that was a great experience as well, and it was very different. Clark went on to I think win 20 games the next year and I was down in Texas grinding my way with some awesome level talent, you know, working very, very long days in West Texas and nobody else out there, but met a lot of people and learned a ton, especially since we practiced about two and a half to three times a day. So there was a lot of on-court experience, you know, still being a relatively young guy, got an opportunity to come back up to Iowa, which, which I really wanted to do. Like as much as I enjoyed Texas, and that high, high level of basketball and being around all these Division One coaches that were coming around. Being in the Midwest was really important to me. I guess I'm more of a family guy than I ever thought, and sometimes you got to leave to figure that out. But Iowa really appealed to me when I was at Clark, so I, I took that opportunity at Grandview, and it ended up perfect because I got to work for Coach Schaefer, who's been at Grandview now for about 20 years, and has had a lot of success at the NAIA level, which is a level that I love. I love the schools that are involved. I love the philosophy of NAI basketball. And I met my wife, Britt. I went up to Madison for a year with you, which was awesome, and Big Dog and Coach Vesterdahl's last year. That was a really special experience. You know, I, I think it's funny because, you know, I think when we were there, we were probably competing for that head job at Madison. The way that we pushed each other to be as good as possible really stuck with me. Like, I think I was sharper that year than I, I probably had been to that point in my career. I think I was more willing to do some dirty work that year than any other year. Gained a ton of respect for you and the work that you put in and, and how hard uh, you go at stuff when you decide to do them. Obviously, being around Coach Vesterdahl and Big Dog, it, it changes your perspective on a lot of things. Like, I was, to that point, you know, really hungry, really driven, really kind of selfish you start to look at the world a little bit differently when you're around guys like the, like they are. You know this, and I wish some of these listeners could meet guys like Coach Vesterdahl, who's just a salt-of-the-earth human being, and uh, Big Dog, obviously, same thing. 
I decided I wanted to get a high school job and come back to Des Moines and had an opportunity to come down to Lincoln High School. And, you know, the high school, I'm sure we'll talk about it. High school was a, a very different jump than college obviously was at all the different levels. But it's been an incredibly rewarding experience. And, you know, I was told by my my great uncle Ron long ago, I should probably consider the high school route because he thought it would fit my personality. And man, was he right. Like it's been It's been a really good fit. You know, I, I probably wouldn't change a thing about the path it took to get here. Well, there's so many things you just hit on that I want to touch base on. But first, I'll say we yeah. had a very healthy competitiveness. And you're right, we Absolutely. pushed each other very well. But that's also because we had respect for each other. And I think that's something that's really important. Competitiveness isn't always the nasty, want to rip the heart out of the opponent type situation. It is often something that pushes people beyond their limits, which is what sports team sports and individual sports are all about and then a couple other things I love your journey because you hit on so many levels and you said you love the NAI level and there's so many different depths of intercollegiate athletics or just athletics in general that people aren't aware of whether you mentioned the word JUCO a few times which is a slang term Mm -hmm. or an acronym for junior college for people who don't Mm -hmm. really understand the junior college level and I know you and I are passionate about educating people on how valuable that level is and the NAI level which also has some really great athletes. And then I'm a nerd out about independent league stuff, whether it's baseball or basketball or whatever it is. I really love those types of things. And that's a connection that we really have. So I just want to clarify some of those acronyms and terms that you were using because people who aren't nerds like us don't always know them. I know coming out of high school for me, I had no clue what the NAI was. And there are still unfortunately a lot of people who don't know that there's a different league than the NCAA out there somewhat regional too you know you you don't hear a ton about NAIA up in Wisconsin because D3 is such a big thing there and NCAA whereas Iowa a lot of our institutions are NAI in fact I think a majority of them are so yeah it's somewhat regional you know based on what state what part of the country you are in yeah and then you can get into California which is a whole nother um, basket Mm -hmm. of worms that we won't touch right now but you hit on something when volunteering at Milwaukee that year after you were the head manager and you were given a lot of experiences you mentioned. Can you tell me about a time where you were just in over your head, but you somehow figured out whatever they needed you to do? Yeah, well, there's one that always sticks out. So um, I noticed as I got older that Rob Jeter was going to always test your level of commitment and loyalty. And it's interesting because you see Rob and he, and he, he really comes off as kind of, uh, straightforward, not a very complicated person, right? But there was one instance that I'll never forget. I actually tell this story to my team a lot. So he said it was his mom's birthday. So he gave me a job and he said, hey, Justin, I just wrote my mom this letter. We have a problem though. It's after 5 p.m. I need to somehow get it out. Can you figure out how to get it out? So I'm like, oh boy. Now take in mind, I lived in a, this is no lie. I lived in a condemned house at Marquette's campus and rode the bus to school every day, right? That's why I was able to help out at Milwaukee as much as I did. I mean, I had a summer job and all that, but I had no transportation that was normal. I was usually asking people for rides at that point in my life, you know, 22, 23 years old. So he gives me this letter and it's all of a sudden the biggest deal to me. I'm like, oh man, I got to take care. I got to figure this out. Well, after about a half hour of asking everybody I knew and asking people for rides and how do you even send something out like overnight? I didn't know any of this stuff. I thought I was being slick. I talked to 
somebody convinced me, just put it in the bag. It's going to go out first thing in the morning. I'm like, okay, I'll put it in the dis- or the athletic department mailbag. I put it in the mailbag. We go to practice. And I think that night we were practicing downtown because I remember him coming out of the tunnel at the U.S. Cellular Arena, now the Mecca. It's always been the Mecca, right? But that's what it was called back then. And I remember him holding this letter and basically lightly scolding me, like not scolding, but one of those, he was giving me that, that tone of voice where he was, he was trying to explain how disappointed in me he was so many more people could hear it, right? He was kind of using me as an example. And to this day, that's one of the worst feelings I've ever had. I mean, he was testing me. There's no question. He was giving me a job that he wanted to see if I was going to do everything it took to get it done. And I still don't know how I would do it different, to be honest, at that point in life. But I know I failed. And what's funny about that is it built in me this level of, like, loyalty. And, um, uh, I, I mean, I was never going to let him down again with anything I ever did. I was never going to let him down. So that's just one instance where I feel like he built loyalty in me by making me feel disappointed that I didn't do, you know, I didn't go the extra mile for him in this one task. I still don't know if it was his mom's birthday. I honestly doubt it. I feel like this is something that he probably did. But, you know, being part of the Bull Ryan coaching tree, there's a lot of stuff there, a lot of lessons in leadership that kind of sneak through that maybe you don't recognize right away, but they end up being really lasting memories and and uh, very important in your growth. I got his number. I should just ask him. It's funny because it's one of those things that just don't even want to bring up. Like, uh, I, it still hurts, honestly. You still have disappointment. Years. It, still, it still bothers me. I still feel like I let him down. And honestly, he probably isn't going to remember it, but, you know, it still sticks with me. Let's talk about your time at Howard. Tell me about an eye-opening experience when you realized that you were – in a different world than you were at UW-Milwaukee, and you had to operate things differently. Jerry Dryman coached Brian Berg at Mount Mercy, and Brian Berg was an assistant coach at Campbell University. And he had me hooked up with a, a variety of different junior colleges, and I was kind of deciding where to go. Well, I settled on uh, Howard College in West Texas. I was actually on vacation with my mom. So I was at home for the summer back in Wisconsin. I was helping my dad do some things at a golf course he ran. And um, I went out to Annapolis, Maryland, and I'm on a boat. And I get a call, and it's Mark Adams, who's now the the defensive guru at Texas Tech. And he says, hey, I lost my assistant. He's going to Midland. I need need somebody here right now. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, I'm on vacation for like 10 days. He goes, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I need need somebody right now. And I wish I could do his accent because he's got this great, legendary West Texas accent. So I'm telling my mom, I'm trying to explain to my mom, I just flew in, you know, to kind of spend the week with her out there in Annapolis slash Virginia. She's like, well, okay, I guess if you got to go back. So I hopped on a plane the next day. I flew back to Milwaukee. I drove up to Two Rivers, Wisconsin, which is another two hours north. I packed my bags and I drove 22 hours straight through and ended up in West Texas. Okay, so that's one thing. I've never been to West Texas. Uh, so that was eye-opening in itself because it's oil country, it's flat, kind of looks like the moon, you know, and I mean that endearingly. It's one of those things you just have to see once, right, because it's very different than the rest of the country. So I'm there for maybe a week, I would say, and I'm helping with a lot of our kids getting eligible for the coming year. If listeners don't know, in junior college, a lot of the time, it's just the academics that kids are missing. Like some, yeah, maybe somebody got in trouble or something like that at a high level, but... 
But most of the time, it's an academic catch-up, right? That's what it's for. The level of play at the Division One junior college level is insanely high, as you know. But I was there for a couple of days. Or I'm trying to get this one student on board. My experience at Clark University was much, much different. It was very hands-off when it came to academics. Like, hey, your expectations are this, you do this. Well, long story short, a couple of days of working with this one point guard we had, and I got him running around the big arena at Howard College. Like, he's just running around. He's yelling stuff at me as he passes, and I am just red in the face. And the picture I have in my mind will always stick with me. It was our women's head coach started walking towards me. Now, this guy was about 70 years old at the time, Earl Diddle. He was actually on staff at Indiana State when they recruited Larry Bird. He's been everywhere, and he's seen everything. And I don't know if this actually happened, but I have this picture in my mind of him popping popcorn in his mouth, and he's like, "Uh, what you doing there, coach? And I'm like, oh, well, he did this, and he yelled at me for this, and he won't do his math homework, he did this, so I'm making him run. He goes, oh, yeah, how how long do you think this is going to work? And I was like, I don't know. I'll run until until he figures out. I didn't have an answer. I was like, I don't know. I don't know what to do. I've never been in this situation. I'm just mad, right? And he's like, hey, do you think maybe you should be a high school or D3 coach? And maybe you're not cut out for this? And I'm I'm looking at him like, man, I don't need this from you. Like, who are you? I know who he is. I know where he's been. And it's funny because that was another one of those moments where I'm like, what am I doing? Like, what are my expectations here? Am I trying to help this kid out? Because obviously his attitude is part of the problem. So if I'm just going to fight him, I'm not going to fix the problem. So that was one of the the times where I looked at myself. I'm like, man, do I even know what I'm doing here? Like, what what's my purpose of being here? Is it just for me or is it for the kids? Am I trying to help them out? And I still have a really great relationship. It's funny because that ended up my favorite player. And I really hope that I was one of his favorite coaches during that period as well. He went on to play at a higher level. That was an aha moment. You know, I think that is important in general in coaching where we have to think about how are we serving the kids, right? Am I trying to be somebody else? Am I trying to be a disciplinarian? Am I just throwing stuff at a wall? And is that stuff helping or hurting the kids that we're around? You got to be very aware of your own growth and kind of your own abilities. Like, where am I comfortable? Where am I not comfortable? How do I get better being comfortable in this situation? If it's going to help the kid, I'm going to have to be a little bit different and maybe bend a little bit more. And I think those lessons down in Texas really made me a better urban high school coach as well, because there's going to be situations that get thrown at us as urban high school educators and coaches that maybe aren't typical, you know, in other areas. But I think it's a lot of trial and error, and I think it's important, and you're hitting on it here, to reflect on what's going well, what's working, what's not, and making an adjustment rather than the trap of, well, this is how it's always done, or this is how I've seen the people before me do it, because things are not static. They're constantly changing, and we have to constantly be evolving. And to your point, we do what we know until we can create more experiences. As we gain more years in coaching, we're able to gain more experiences, what didn't work, what did work, and apply those to our future occurrences. You know, I've told a story before about I was coaching a I think they were second or third graders at the time. And Henry Allenson was on the team, who's now with the Toronto Raptors. <laughs> and I was in college. So we were coaching them like college kids. And they're nine years old, for crying out loud. And just looking back on it now, how ridiculous it was, the things we were doing in practice and the expectations we had for them. 
And the reality is we should have just been having as much fun as possible and enjoying the game. But I digress with that. I want to get into competitiveness a little bit. Can you tell me a little bit about the first time you remember being in a really competitive situation? Oh, the first time. It's funny because I can think of high school golf being ultra competitive, uh, especially my senior year for some reason. I remember every single shot that anybody took. You know, we had a lot of eyes on it. Uh, everybody was always trying to one-up, you know, the next guy. We had uh, five or six guys that were competing for two spots on my senior year golf team. And I remember that really being a tense year. It's funny, those most competitive times are, are also when the best friendships are made. I'm still tight with all those guys, you know, from that golf team back in the day. Um, after that, I would say it's probably in Texas. You know, you, you think about the Division One Junior College world is just so fascinating because every single person there is, it seems like, is competing to get to another level. So it's not just the players. Of course, the players want to get to the highest level possible, you know, and there's coaches around from the highest level possible, from Wichita State to Memphis to, you know, LSU, whatever it is. But the coaches want to get there too. So it's really interesting. Like the dynamic that you and I had at Madison was not the first time I had that. You know, I had that in Texas first. And again, it's still one of the best relationships I have. Jace Coburn, who's an assistant, actually the associate head coach at Portland State now, was a guy that I was competing with part of the staff for Mark Adams and we were always trying to push each other to be the best that we could be and about halfway through the year we became really really tight really leaning on each other with these long hours and all the things that we were trying to help the kids with to be as strong as they could academically and survive these six hours on the floor every day that we had back then and the long film sessions and the crazy travel you know we really leaned on each other but yeah division one junior college really sticks out to me for being just ultra competitive at every level, no matter what you're doing. I mean, even the trainers, I think about the trainers that we had at Howard College that were trying to get internships at the biggest schools they possibly could or, you know, finish their four-year degree at the the biggest school they could on staff, you know, and that kind of sets you up for the rest of your career. So it's interesting. It it builds a really big bond with the team because you're only together a year. And a lot of the team turns over in Division One JUCO, whether it's the head coach or assistants or obviously the players, right? They can only be there three years tops if they redshirt a year and then play two. That that year together, you really remember just about everything that happens, everybody you played, um, every funny moment. That competitiveness really forges a bond. So, you know, at the high school level, I try to make it feel the same way it did in JUCO, where we're all trying to better ourselves and reach another level. Almost everybody I hire on my high school staff, you know, I like it when somebody interviews with me and they tell me they want to be a head coach. I think that's just a really good fit because I would love to be able to graduate these assistants into head coaching roles. I'd love to be able to graduate these players into college playing roles. You know, we've had a few and I think we're going to have a bunch more coming up. That's the best kind of atmosphere where everybody is pushing each other to the highest level possible, you know, super competitive with each other super competitive for these scholarships and job opportunities. It really forges that bond and makes everybody better. Everybody is pushing to want more, and that's a good situation to be in. And that's kind of what we're talking about here with competitiveness. And you just brought us into your high school world a little bit. Walk me through where the program at Des Moines Lincoln was, where you took over, 
what you did to transition it and where it is now? I don't think I really realized what I was getting into. I'll, I'll say Britt and I lived on the south side the year before I came up and joined you at Madison, and we loved it. It was a very unique neighborhood. It's a huge area of, of Des Moines, and it's separated. It's kind of funny. Uh, they always say Southsiders never leave the south side because they don't have to, right? If it's north of the river, you don't have to go there. They have like their own city on the south side, and I really enjoyed that. I thought it was cool. So when Lincoln opened up, and I think it was that summer after we worked together, I'm like, you know what? I should just I should just do this. I want to be a high school coach. I want to be back with Britt. She's never going to leave Grandview, you know, where she works in the athletic department. So this is going to be great. So I took the job at Lincoln. They gave me a job helping kids prepare for college. It was a perfect fit. But what I didn't realize was, you know, obviously the program hadn't won, but that means a very different thing in high school than it does in college. In college, you can kind of flick a switch. You know, you get a couple of kids in there that maybe are junior college or prep school or grad transfers or whatever it is, they, they can kind of turn it around on the floor quicker than the program culture is changing, if that makes sense. It's almost like you can throw in a stopgap. In high school, especially in the 4A system in Iowa, which is like Division One in Wisconsin, uh, really hard to do that. There's a huge gap in talent, but honestly, it's the mentalities that that's the biggest difference. Like if you if you have a losing mentality in your program in high school, it's it's a product of a much bigger problem, right? I, I noticed in October uh, of my first year, so a month and a half before we even started practice, I'm like, man, these kids don't go to class. If they do go to class, they're not even taking the test. We have major major attendance problems, tardies. It was really hard. I mean, and I was really struggling mentally, going through all kinds of stuff uh, going into that first year. And, you know, we, we played our first seven games before Christmas break. And I remember we lost like 56 to 16 to Hoover, which is a conference rival of ours. And everybody on social media is talking about how terrible we are. And I'm sure everybody thinks I'm the biggest idiot on the planet. But Lincoln hadn't won in, in about 11 years. You know, their last winning season was 2007. It was 2016, so nine years. Now, I wasn't sure how long it was going to take, but I was really committed administration had shown a lot of faith in me and they they gave me kind of a second chance with some of the my own issues that I was dealing with. So I was really committed to the cause and gave me the ability to put my nose to the grindstone and, and really do what needed to be done. So directly, what needed to be done? We needed to fix the classroom issue. We needed to fix the fact that our kids weren't in there, you know, and if they were, they weren't doing what they needed to do. So I took some lessons from my Mark Adams days. And I'm like, okay, we got to get the kids in the front of the class. We got to make sure that everybody's there every day. And we're going to start taking stuff away when they can't. So we had like 40 kids that were in the program. And we just gave them a list of these are your expectations. And if we don't meet them, you know, you're just not going to be a part of it. And I can't tell you how much it helped our program and how much it hurt the public's opinion of me. Because all of a sudden we had these players that were pretty good that were just disappearing. And I wasn't going to put up with it. I'm like, okay, we need to show these younger guys because the 2020 class looked pretty good to me. The freshman class is doing pretty well. I'm like, we have to show them how to be. We have to show them. So we had 14 varsity players that did not finish the season that year. And it was all because of multiple offenses of being late for practice or not coming to practice or you know, missing a whole day of school or whatever it was. It was stuff that was not going to lead to the success of the program. 
So we just cut ties with them. And, and with a lot of them, I kept a pretty good relationship. But I would say the parent opinion of me was terrible. The district opinion of me was terrible. I mean, I had constant meetings with important people at the district about how I should be doing this. And But, I, you know, a lot of the times I was thinking about that experience with Earl Diddle. And I'm like, man, I, I got to do this the right way for the program. And it's not about saving one senior that will not come and fix some of the simple things that need to be fixed. In a lot of these situations, it's about saving 15 to 20 freshmen that are looking up at that senior. You know what I mean? And that's the, the difference between what I was going through in Texas and what I was going through in high school. These freshmen and sophomores are looking uphill at these seniors and seeing what how I respond to them and how they're acting. And there's no question, as a younger coach, as a first-year head coach, they were trying to take advantage of me a little bit. After Christmas, we were real strict. And one thing happened that was just phenomenal that, that particular year. Will McElvain reached out to me around Christmas break. He decided, so just so you know who he was, he's the current uh, first-string quarterback at Northern Iowa. Okay, he's he's going to be a sophomore. Obviously, this year they didn't play, so he's a sophomore. He was a, senior, or a junior that year, and he decided not to play because he wanted to focus on football. He was getting recruited by D1 schools and all that. He reached out to me and said, Coach, I really like what you're doing with the program. I want to be a part of it. He's a good shooter. He's an athlete. He's the most popular person in the school, no question. And a lot of it's just because he's such a great kid. So he joins, and everything changed. And this was right around January. Now, I'll tell you this. We finished 1-21, Billy. So it's not like it looked like things were changing. If you're looking at the scoreboard and you're looking at the, the newspaper or the tweets, it's looking bad, right? It looks bad for all of us. And it was two wins less than the year before. We were 3-18 and 18 without me the year before. We're 1-21. and 21. So it looks like things are getting worse. But Will was able to show our freshmen and our sophomores that were really talented and just needed to see someone succeed. He was able to show them how to act in school how to respond to teachers, how to be a leader, you know, how to work hard. Will worked so hard, and this was not his first sport. He was literally doing this just because he wanted to be a part of what was going on. So Will only played his junior year. We finished 1-21, in 21, but I'll tell you this. The next spring and summer when we were running workouts in our gym, you know, in spring I can't coach, but I can open the gym, and, you know, people will come in and help them out. Um, the numbers were incredible. We were able to play a summer league, and you know we were coming up and playing team camps, and um, the mentality switched, and all of a sudden these these freshmen turned into sophomores, and the sophomores turned into juniors. So the second year we went five and eighteen. It was the best five and eighteen team I've ever been around. I'll tell you that. Like they they were in a lot of games. We just weren't real uh, efficient with anything we did. So a lot of that's just youth, right? We had a lot of sophomores that were getting key minutes. And then the third year is really when things changed. So the mentality was, and everybody could see this, you know, suburb coaches were calling me and, you know, would talk to me about, man, your team has changed so much. I see them everywhere. They're out in the community. They're involved in all kinds of events. They're playing in AAU teams. We haven't seen Lincoln kids play heavy AAU ball in a long time. So that was kind of cool to see that they were being noticed for the work that they were putting in. But this third year, the GPA was a 3.6. And I was like, man, like, this is a special group. And it really was. We had a couple of 4.0 plus kids on the team. And I still think about Will McIlvain joining. And I'm like, I don't know if this happens without him. But the third year we went about 500, 
had a couple players go on and play in college, actually three that year. And then last year, that 2020 class was basically it. We had you know six seniors that played a lot of minutes and a couple of younger kids that came in and just helped out you know, as like depth type guys. We were the shortest team that I saw in 4A, which is our highest level in Iowa. We were the shortest team that I saw all year. We were able to win 13 games and, and win our Metro Conference. And it was a really special night when it happened. You know, we had a 3.3 team GPA that just came out, you know, a couple weeks before. We had two shots at the conference title against our biggest rival, Des Moines North. And we had never beaten Des Moines North. The first shot, we had them down 13 in the fourth quarter on our floor. And they literally outscored us by 30 points in the fourth quarter. It was the most unbelievable show of offense I've ever seen in my life, including Malik, one of their, their point guards, hitting multiple threes from the center circle. It was just incredible. And, you know, you would have thought it was deflating, but we knew we had another shot at them. So on Friday night, that same week, the game plan was slightly tweaked, but mostly the same. Our guys had a fantastic mentality, and we had a really, really good meeting in the locker room with just our 2020 kids and and some of those core members of the younger group. I asked them to close their eyes. So just so you know how Des Moines set up, the north side is just north of downtown, and the south side, where our school is, is just south of downtown. So you go through downtown to get from the north to south or vice versa. I wanted them to picture driving through the city being Metro champs. You know, just picture that drive. We win the conference title, and you get to drive to that city, and it's yours forever. And everything that you've worked for the past four years, they'll never take that away from you. The city's yours, you know, because our conference is essentially the schools in the city. It was something we we just kind of all looked around the room like, this is going to happen. We're going to do this. We're, we're going to take down this dragon once and for all. And the next night, we were perfect. We were absolutely perfect in every phase, effort, resilience, north has always had guys that are just unbelievable scores, no matter how much you can test them. Uh, we were able to ride those waves of crazy scoring. We were really efficient and won by about 18 or 16, something like that. And man, the party in the stands was incredible. But, you know, there's always that, that lasting memory. You know who comes down? It's Will McElvain, who drove down two hours from Cedar Falls, wearing his purple, you know, and he's one of the first guys to congratulate me. I'm like, man, you did this. You know, this this all started with you. These uh, seniors right now, this 2020 class, this is yours. I don't know what happens without him. So a lot of times you really just got to give a lot of credit to the people around you. You know, I'm not sure where this program would be without guys like Will, but I'm I'm definitely very appreciative. And now where we're headed as a program is is even more exciting because now these kids that are coming up, they've seen us be successful, not only in the community with some of the things that we do, but in the classroom. You know, another 3.3 GPA this fall, and that's all a testament to them. I mean, I, I don't take any tests for them. That's just their commitment, and then obviously winning on the court. So there's a lot of excitement and, and hopefully a lot of, you know, college recruiters coming in our gym in the future to watch these guys play because they definitely – they've been earning that opportunity. Well, the moral of the story there is before you have any success, you have to have adversity, and you were steadfast in your convictions with how you wanted to handle things even through having multiple people coming at you with doubts and being willing, being able to have the confidence in yourself because of the experiences you've had to to get them through that. And I can tell you firsthand, I mean, I've been in your gym on a handful of occasions and I watch from a distance that those kids adore you. And that relationship there is what that success is all about. 
and I see it. I know those kids see it, those parents see it, and it's really awesome what you built there. And I know where you are now with with what your successes are, but can you tell me how your mindset has changed over the course of your time in coaching to what success meant to what it means to you now? Yeah, absolutely. I think when I was, you know, spending all those hours uh, working at Milwaukee for nothing, you know, for Rob, just loving life. I th- I think I thought success was the shiny shoe, the uh, student section, the pet band, the big arenas, the travel, the, you know, high level recruiting. As I got older, it, it changed, but it was similar, right? Like I'd go to the final four and I'd see all the elbow rubbing between all the college coaches. I'm like, yeah, I want to be like one of those guys. You know, that's where I want to be. And then as, as I advanced through, you know, tough things, um, I noticed that it's a lot bigger than that stuff, and it's really not about you. Somebody said to me a couple of years ago, and I can't pinpoint where I first heard it, but they said, when things are going good, you have to make sure that you're looking out the window. And when things are going bad, you have to make sure you're looking in the mirror. And it probably took until I took the Lincoln job for that to really sink in for me. Like, um, you know, even though there were a lot of things that I can blame on my surroundings and what I came into at Lincoln that were not going well, I wasn't that great either when I showed up. It's almost like we all improved at the same time. And it's because we all were willing to look inside. You know, like, yeah, there were a lot of people that fell off the boat. Um, but, but anybody willing to be there was willing to do the hard thing and really look at yourself and see what you need to improve, whether it's, you know, in the classroom or, or, you know, for me with my job, with, with my family, was I going to be, how, how good of a person could I possibly be? Right. Am I always striving to be better at all of the important things? Um, success is much different. I, I, I just don't think it's winning anymore. You know, I think that winning is actually a byproduct. It's, it's something that we can strive for, but you know, it's not the ultimate, you know, I used to, want to be Ron Einerson and have state championships and have the most wins in Wisconsin history when, when I retired like him, you know, I wanted to be like that. Now I think it's, it's based on the community that you help build. It's based on the young men that you help create, you know, what kind of fathers are they going to be? You know, it, it sounds so corny and it used to, to me when I hear people say it, it was usually older coaches that would say it, but, but that's, that's absolutely what it is. You know, now I'll tell you, The best feeling I've had in my entire coaching career is I'll go back about a month when we're actually allowed to play because right now we're we're on hold. We were playing in a fall league as a quote-unquote club team, quote-quote, and uh, we were playing against other high schools in the Iowa region, you know, Des Moines region, and I had three of my alums coaching, and two of them graduated this past year in the 2020 class and were out in college, and one of them graduated from the year before and actually played at DMACC. And just watching them coach and yell out some of the things that we've been yelling out for the last four years and see them give post-game speeches and talk about the things that need to improve and here's what your focus needs to be and you can do more than we've ever done. That was the best feeling I've ever had. And it's, you know, it's funny because there was a, there's a big supporter of our program who's a grandma of a player and she does all of our Instagram. If you guys want to <laughs> check out rails underscore hoops, uh, she's phenomenal. She pulls something literally every day. She noticed it, and she sent me a picture of, you know, those three guys and me. And, uh, yeah, that was a great feeling. It was just awesome to feel um, this program with that strong foundation. And now, you know, our alums are, are giving back even though they've moved on. That's that's pretty neat. I'd say that's what success is. If I could do that 
you know, every year watch my alums coach these summer and fall league teams and I'll be a happy guy. Yeah, it's a great way to have a community around you that supports you and building it yourself gives you the ultimate satisfaction. Let's dive into some of the coaching nuance things here. Can you talk to me a little bit about coaching resources or a in particular resource that you use to help your coaching skills? Well, I'm big on championship productions, actually. Um, I've I've ordered quite a few of those uh, coaching DVDs, and really it's just to sharpen up. It's kind of to broaden my, my scope of what's out there in the basketball world. So, so I'd say there's two, right? One is championship productions, and I'll buy stuff that I have no interest in adding to my program. And, um, you know, for instance, I don't care about out-of-bounds plays. I just don't. But I'll buy a video about out-of-bounds plays just to, just to get up-to-date on some of the things that are happening. You know, obviously, maybe I'll throw one in. Maybe I'll just put it online and tell my assistants to do it, and, hey, you put in the out-of-bounds plays. But but really, it's to, to just make me a little bit uh, more in the know about what, what the trends are, because I don't want to be that coach in 10 years that just has no idea how the game's changing, right? I've beaten those coaches before, <laughs> so I don't want to be that guy. So going out and getting things that are maybe outside my own comfort zone is really important. I'm very sure of what I want to run on both ends. Finding things that will make me broaden my mind is, is important. And the second thing is I'm a huge NBA junkie, and I think that's been a really big asset for me because there's things that you see in the NBA, and, and you know, league pass is where I, I kind of spend most of my time uh, when I'm not coaching myself. It, you see it first in the NBA, and then you see it in college, and then you see it in high school. And there's like a five-year fall from the first time it shows up in the NBA, year two or three it ends up in college, and then year two or three it ends up at your high school level, especially you know at our level. I'm always trying to beat the trends, and I think we have with a couple of things, which is kind of fun. So I'd say those would be the two that I spend the most time on. I will also say this. I love talking to football coaches. I love that, and I'm not even picking a subject to talk about. I love talking to high school and college football coaches. I mean, first of all, they have 9 to 15 guys in their staff. That's crazy to me. It makes my job feel really easy and seeing how they organize everything and how they delegate and how they spend this much time with their quarterback. I try to spend time with my point guard just because they spend time with their quarterback. I feel like that makes our relationship better and creates a coach on the floor toughness factors, handling injuries, handling whatever it is. I I just think football coaches have to go through quite a bit to keep their programs afloat, and I'm always kind of in awe of it. And maybe part of it is the first time in my career that I was ever even around football was when I was 28 and I took the Grandview job. I've spent a lot of time talking to those guys. Our new coach at Lincoln is just phenomenal, you know, with the weight room stuff and everything. And There's just a wealth of knowledge. I want my team to play like a football team. I want us to be the team that those suburbs don't want to play. Sometimes I hope that it's just going to rub off on me and I'm going to be able to to bring that down to my players. So there's two and a half resources that I spend a lot of time with. You hit on something that is coming out of a lot of my conversations that I value, which is using sports as a general lens to help other coaches. And it's never the X's and O's because, like you just mentioned, football, very rarely is there an X and O portion that you can transfer, but there's so many other things that go into coaching that can be used cross sport. And it's so important to keep it fresh with some of those things, but also 
use the things that are being successful out of the people and incorporate it into your own message. And so with that message, I have a scenario I want to play out for you. You're in a game. Let's say you're at Steve Bergman's gym in Iowa, Iowa City, just because I know Steve, oh, and I'll use that example. And <laughs> That's a tough place playing, to be, man. Well, that's why it's the example. And yep. All right. the game is just going off the rails, and you call a timeout. What is your message to the team to get your team back on track? Probably to relax, because usually when you're talking about a tense atmosphere on the road, man, I miss those. You know, in times of COVID, it really makes you appreciate those a little bit more, doesn't it? Appeal to the players in a way that it's going to be opposite of what the atmosphere is. Effort is probably not the problem in that type of gym. It's probably lack of focus. It's probably, you know, more based on hoping you don't fail than actually working to succeed. So in a lot of those instances, it's actually pretty relaxed. Now, if you get later in the game and things are are real bad and you're starting to get away from who you are as a team, that's where maybe there's a little bit more intensity. But I really believe in countering whatever the atmosphere is. So that's actually something I learned in junior college. I remember in Texas, we played a lot of games. We had these great players that went on and played, you know, at a high level. We, we used to play against South Plain. And I remember this. We were playing against Marshall Henderson, who ended up at Ole Miss. The atmosphere was just dead. And the comment that one of our assistant coaches made was, you have to create your own atmosphere. I was like, man, that's, that's a good point. But if you're in a gym that's empty, you really want to kind of fire it up, right? The atmosphere has got to come from within your program. You know, right now, the best teams right now, you look at like the Iowa Hawkeyes, for example, they do a great job of creating their own atmosphere in these empty gyms. Not everybody's good at that. If you're in a full gym and it's crazy and it's, it's obvious that your guys are shaking a little bit from, you know, that atmosphere, sometimes I think you need to counter it, bring us right back to, hey, man, let's remember that time you, uh, you fell down the hill when we were raking leaves at, uh, Aiden Cord's dad's house. You remember that? Like it's stuff like that to make you kind of come back. Okay, hey, we're in this together. This is part of the process. Let's just get back to square one. I really think that's valuable in those situations. That is a beautiful message. I love that. And you just hit on something that I really like to ask. You said it in a different way, but I'm going to ask it in a way that makes sense to me. And you're in a setting, whether it's getting your kids to succeed academically or in the community or in a game setting. Is it the fear of losing or the joy of winning that takes over you? I've heard it both ways. A lot of guys that are coaching at a high level, I've heard them say it's a fear of losing. I would say now, personally, it's actually more of a joy of winning. I don't think, look, man, I I was 6 and 40 my first two years at Lincoln. I don't think I really fear losing anymore. Does that make sense? It'd be crazy for me to fear losing. I mean, if, if I never win another game at Lincoln... I was still part of a great program, one or two season run, and I feel like I've given everything I, I could to this school and community and program. So I don't I don't think it's necessarily about the fear that drives me at all anymore. I think maybe when I was younger it did. There is a special joy to winning that I think you can only experience if you've been through the hard stuff, and I think that's all that we're experiencing right now at Lincoln. You know, we had a really rough summer league we had two freshmen starting, and they're going to be great. Just so many things to learn. And I, I remember one particular game, we gave up a huge lead, and, you know, we all drive separate to these gyms, and I'm leaving, and I'm happy as a clam. I'm just, like, singing in the car. I'm like, man, I wouldn't be doing this two years ago. You know, but there was a real joy to the process. It's not even about winning. It's just 
like I can see, oh man, we don't rotate real well out of the hole and, you know, this kid can't shoot yet and this kid doesn't know how to finish, you know, off two feet yet. I mean, this is all fixable stuff. Not only that, but I know that they're all going to go to the class when, when school starts this fall. You know, I'm not going to have to worry about them being late. They're super committed. That's the ultimate joy is just knowing that this thing is going to build and build and build. You know, it's like you got, now that we've been through it, it's like we have a blueprint. That's pure joy. You know, seeing my daughter out on the floor with these guys, she's two years old and running around and seeing how they interact with her. I mean, it's just pure joy. There's, there's no fear left. You know, if you're rising up the chain and, and you want to be at a high level, maybe, maybe it is part of it, but I can't relate to that anymore. Let's talk a little bit about the future. Tell me about your next project and your motivations behind what you have coming up for you and your career, your program, whatever you feel applicable. Yeah, I started teaching school. We went, Britt and I decided that uh, I needed to make a little bit more money, <laughs> which is always a good idea. So I went to grad school. See, that was two years ago, two years of grad school out at Morningside, which is a great experience, a lot of time invested, and uh, gave me the opportunity to delegate quite a bit more to my assistants because I'd be gone a little bit more on the weekends. That ended up being good. I started teaching history last year. I'm in my second year now. and That's been awesome. Like, while you are doing whatever you're doing, Billy, I get to teach about D-Day. I literally taught a lesson about D-Day today. So I feel like I don't even have a job sometimes. That's amazing. So that's one part. You know, I'm really excited about the fact that we fell into this lawn landscaping and lawn work thing. And it's going to be able to fund an AAU program. So Des Moines AAU is kind of a pay-to-play system that's really been benefiting the suburb, the suburbs more than city. City kids are playing, it's because they're super high level, right? And we have a couple of those that are playing at a, a really big team, whether it's in Des Moines or Kansas City, which isn't too far away. But not everybody. And one thing that I always wanted to do is set up our own AAU program, and I had no idea how to fund it. I'm always asking for community support. I'm to the point, you know, I got to the point last year where I was almost feeling bad for how much money I was asking for without giving anything back in return. So this fall, you know, we're in COVID and we're not in school. Well, Aiden, one of our players, his dad has this huge house west side of town. And he's like, hey, come over. I'll give you some money to rake leaves. I'm like, okay, how big is this project? He goes, it's going to take you two days and probably four hours each day. I'm like, holy cow, I don't want to do this. You know, <laughs> But we go out there and grabbed a bunch of rakes and uh, carried a bunch of stuff around and had a big bonfire. And, you know, he's like, you should be doing this all the time. And I'm like, you know what? We're going to. Well, we didn't even have to reach out. Our trusty grandma, Rosanna, posted it on Instagram, you know, a couple of pictures. And I think she dubbed it like uh, Lincoln Landscapers or something like that. And all of a sudden, we kept getting these job offers. We're out of school. The weather's great. You know, the leaves haven't even started falling yet. But people are starting to think ahead about their landscaping, what they need done. And on a typical week, you know, we'd be together as a whole program of 20 kids, two, three, four times. And people are Venmoing us. You know, we put together a bank account. And long story short, we made about $7,000 off of helping people with whatever they need. You need your gutters cleaned. You need uh, us to, we help the church move some stuff. And, uh, you know, our guys got a lot of notoriety for it. You know, the news came out and did a story about us. You know, our guys really appreciated that. For me, it was really cool to see how their mentalities changed when it came to the work. At, at first, they hated it, right? I mean, anything you're not comfortable with, you're probably not going to like. And you could be doing something else. You'd be playing 2K or whatever. But, a couple of days in, they got really good at what they were doing. They understood how to clean out a gutter, and I'm not teaching them. We're just figuring it out. You know, we don't even own anything. We don't even own 
more than rakes. We don't we don't know what we're doing. We're going to figure it out. But they get started to gain confidence. You know, we go to a project and all of a sudden we'd have you know Tavion up on the roof and he's cleaning the gutters because that's what he does, right? And Trevari grabs the leaf blower because that's what he does. And Kyrell's out back, you know, raking leaves. And I mean, it's just a it's a pretty cool thing to see come together because it's really driven by them. And, you know, one time, funny story, this is about maybe two months ago. Uh, I sent them somewhere. I sent two different groups out. I joined one and the other one went somewhere else. Well, the cops got called on them. And I'm like, what the heck is this about? Well, it turns out that they were laughing so loud in the backyard while they were working that somebody thought they were having a party at this person's house. <laughs> so the cops <laughs> go over there and the cops are like, and the cops are like, oh, you're just raking leaves. You're rake. Why are you raking leaves? Like, mind blowing to them, you know, that all these city high schoolers were just raking somebody's leaves on the south side. And they're like, well, that's what we do. And it was that was a pretty cool experience too, because now there's another facet of our society that understands what our kids are about and what we're trying to trying to do. And it, honestly, as a coach, I really miss them. You know, when I'm not around them, because. As a high school coach, you're around them all the time. You know, all day long, I got to pop into my room and trying to get on my NBA league pass or whatever it is. To not have them around in fall was really hard for for me personally. So to say, hey, guys, uh, everybody's required to be here at 3.30 was cool because now I get a time to interact with them. I get to see them kind of interact and get some of the younger guys involved earlier. You know, we got some eighth graders around. We never had that before. That's been really special. I'm really excited about being able to raise our own money as a pro as a program, and then also teach some of these guys how they can be successful after high school. Right? Just see what needs to be done. You know, go find a need and and go fill that need. Well, you said a phrase there. Figure it out. You know, a lot of times we don't know what we're doing, but you just got to dive in and get started with it. But also, I can promise you that years from now, that memory of raking leaves will be one of the signature moments of their time with you in their program. And it's nothing even related to basketball. And that's the beautiful thing about sports is it's so much bigger than in between the lines. No question. That's absolutely true. And that's something that that would be very gratifying comes to fruition. Well, Justin, I appreciate your time and your insights. You know that I love chatting with you and, and we could talk for hours and hours but I'm going to get you out of here. And in our notes, I will definitely add your social media accounts and your Venmo. So if people want to help support your program, they can do that because they know after hearing you that it's going to a good cause and that you're doing the right thing for the kids in your community and in your program. And I appreciate you sharing your stories, your journey, and your insights because everybody has a different path. And that's what makes this so fun is it's not a straight line. You get to weave in and out and have all these amazing experiences. Absolutely. Well, I'm happy that you were a part of the journey and, and very happy to be on uh, so early in what's going to be an awesome podcast. So thanks for having me. Next time on Competitive Mindset. This sounds kind of strange, but I feel like when you set goals, you probably shouldn't reach all of your goals. Competitive Mindset Music was produced by DJ Jojo Moore and all images were created by Elena Keel. Be sure to subscribe, rate, leave a review, and follow us at Competitive Pod.